0: This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball.
1: Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Two cards this week. Number 463, Fred McGriff, DH first baseman, four. The Toronto Blue Jays and seven twenty nine. The Toronto Blue Jays team leaders card.
0: Okay, great. Two cards with Fred McGriff.
1: Looking forward to this.
0: But before we get to that, we have a quick trip to the nineteen eighty eight tops mailbag. We want to give a special shout out to at Tim Briggs here, who heard our request this past week. David, you and I had a a very exciting Sunday night this past week as the U.S. men's national team in soccer defeated Mexico 3-2 to in extra time in the final of the CONCACAF Nations League. It was an incredible victory, very exciting. Two penalties in extra time, one for each team. Christian Pulisic scoring for the U.S. And Andres Guardado failing for Mexico in humiliating fashion. U.S. securing a victory in this epic tournament that was only just created like a year and a half ago.
1: Yeah, so much history there. And not only did Guardado fail to score, but he failed to score because of new USA legend Ethan Horvath. Of course, a guy named Ethan is the (laughs) the U.S. soccer legend. I put out a request in my delirium at nearly, I think, 1 a.m. after watching this game and said... If somebody could make us a 1988 tops Ethan Horvath, he deserves an episode. So I don't know that he's going to get a whole episode, but (laughs) within hours, Tim Briggs here said, Ask and you shall receive, and sent a USA Ethan Horvath card. It looks beautiful. And Tim had been in contact before because he had made some classic card versions for his kids' baseball team, and they were really amazing. Like everything from the 87 Tops, he had an 88 Tops All-Star card. So I already knew that Tim could do this, but he really came through with this beautiful Ethan Horvath USA card.
0: It's a stunning work of graphic art. So thank you very much, Tim. We appreciate it. Now let's go to our cards. So David, why do we choose Fred McGriff today?
1: Matt, we had a guest on a couple months ago, Andy from High Heat Stats. And we knew that Andy was going to come back because Andy did the 88 Tops card blog. And after Andy was on to talk about Gary Thurman, we said, let us know what cards you want to talk about. And Andy sent, I don't know, 700 or so cards that he had an interest in talking about or had a special comment about. So we decided to pick a better known player than Gary Thurman to talk about and we picked Fred McGriff and also Andy was referenced on the Ron Kittle episode last week we know that when whenever there's a Andy from high heat stats reference he appears (laughs) and I think Ron said that this guy has too much time on his hands so Andy proving that by joining us again thank you for your time today and welcome back to the pod.
2: That's four times you said my name, so your wish is my command. I am, <laughs> I am here. I am here for you guys.
0: Yeah, so uh, I think first, you know, journal- journalistic ethics would force us to begin with. Do you have any response to Ron Kittle saying you have too much time on your hands?
2: Uh, he's absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> who my who am I to argue with Ron Kittle? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there have been a few players that have commented on various places where I've written, whether it was on the baseball reference blog years ago or on the High Heat Stats website. Kurt Schilling came on and commented on our website once, and it was interesting. Although I don't care much for Schilling's behavior as a person, he said something that I respect, which was he he looked at Our incredibly nerdy commentary on his career, and he said something like what Kittle said, but much nicer. I thought, which was, Hey, listen, you guys are obviously really smart, and you've obviously put a lot of time into thinking about this, but I don't think you fully understand everything that goes on in the game and the psychology of things, and all the rest of that, which I think was a much nicer way of saying you guys don't play. You don't know what you're talking about. Buzz off, which is more or less what, what Ron Kittle was saying. (laughs) And listen, I respect all those professional athletes to, to to tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not a baseball player. So that's fine.
1: I viewed it more lovingly from Ron that he was joking. You know, he seems like a, a, a jovial guy. It seemed like he was just saying, why would you waste your time on old Ron Kittle?
0: Ron Kittle seems like a, he's a man who enjoys the simple things in life. As we learned last week he really enjoys tacos he enjoys riding his harley i think doing statistical analysis is really not his in his wheelhouse all the same andy welcome back and so tell us why was fred mcgriff on your short list of cards to talk about
2: well you know mcgriff is a fascinating player because he is not somebody who's remembered much at all by most casual fans but my gosh, he was a force. He was a really, really great player and I'm sure we're going to go through his career in detail and he's a guy who just never gets his due. You have to remember that the Blue Jays, you know, they started in 1977 and they were, you know, like most expansion franchises, not super great for a while. The, the they had some really good pitching They obviously had, you know, some good players, Jesse Barfield and George Bell and and other guys that came up like that. But McGriff was one of the very first, oh, wow, this is a superstar power hitting first baseman. This is a prototypical guy. And he really put that team on the map and and helped them make the playoffs for only the second time in their franchise history.
1: As we've done on some previous episodes, we have to thank Sabre Bios for a very good Fred McGriff biography by Peter Gordon. Thank you for making our research and our job much easier here.
0: Let's go to the front of the card. Let's do 729 first here, the team leaders card. And this has Fred McGriff and George Bell. We're not going to talk too much about this card because George Bell has two other cards of his own. And so we'll talk more about George Bell when we get to his episode. But now to 463, and Fred McGriff's card, this is this is a good-looking card. You know, this is taken from below, so looking up at, at Fred McGriff, which in classic kind of photography uh, usage is a hero pose. It puts him in a, a position of respect. Fred is definitely doing that. He's looking up as well. Got the very tall, as usual, baseball cap with the Blue Jay logo on the front. Blue shirt, blue long sleeve underneath. Got a good thin mustache
1: i think that fred's wearing the batting practice dark blue on the team leaders card you do get to see that beautiful powder blue away jersey love that 80s blue jays powder blue and the these classic hats too with the the blue and with the white front and the Mm. very cool blue jays logo so i i like these 80s blue jays jerseys and particularly the powder blues
2: that logo got a lot of press recently as being one of the greatest sports logos in history, and there's a there's a whole uh, story that was recently published about the history of that logo. I just want to second something that Matt said. It, it really is a hero pose, and this, this this low angle shooting up on the player is really reminiscent of how Topps did a lot of cards in the 1960s and 70s, but not how they did a lot of cards in the 80s. You're, in this 88 Topps set you'll be hard-pressed to find many other shots like this. Almost all the cards are either action shots of players batting or pitching, or they are sort of standard portraits. I don't know what motivated this card, but it is, in my opinion, a classic.
1: And I wonder if the photographer knew at the time that Fred was an up-and-coming player that, and wanted to get an iconic shot. Because at this point, he's just coming off his rookie season wasn't a rookie of the year or anything, but had a solid rookie season.
0: So going to the back of the card, Fred 6'3", 215, left-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Yankees in the ninth round, June 1981, born on Halloween 1963 in Tampa, Florida with a home in Tampa, Florida.
1: And we've talked about Tampa and the quality of players coming out of Tampa around this time in the Floyd Yeomans episode, where Floyd and his cousin, Doc Gooden, were from East Tampa. Fred was from West Tampa. He was the youngest of five kids. All of his siblings, two brothers, two sisters were much older. His dad was a TV repairman. And he also had two cousins who would go on to play in Major League Baseball, Terry McGriff, who's in this set, and Charles Johnson, who is Terry McGriff's nephew. Both of those guys were catchers, and Charles Johnson was really one of the last African-American catchers in Major League Baseball to play regularly, which I think is an interesting story that we'll get into maybe in Terry McGriff or Floyd Rayford's episodes. Fred grew up near Al Lopez Field. Al Lopez was famously the manager of the 1959 White Sox and the first Tampa native to play in Major League Baseball. So this field is named after him. And he's coaching the White Sox as they're playing at Al Lopez Field. So the Reds were the tenant of Al Lopez Field when Fred was little. And he spent a lot of time watching them in spring training. And he also worked as a vendor. He became a big Reds fan. He said that all he ever wanted to do since he was six years old was play baseball, memorizing stats and love to play the game. He went to Jefferson High School, other baseball alumni there, Luis Gonzalez, Tino Martinez, who is in this set in the USA team, and Tony Larusa. He had a legendary coach, Pop Cuesta, who spent 43 years at Jefferson High School. He he had a record of 646 wins and 397 losses from 1972 to 2015.
0: But David, with coaching more than a thousand games, it seems like he made a huge mistake. He cut Fred from the team.
1: As a sophomore. And at a celebration of Cuesta's career, Fred called this out and said, you cut me from the team. And yeah, I, I think he was joking about it. Fred seems like a pretty good natured guy. And Pop Cuesta's response was, this is not the Fred McGriff that we are thinking of right now. This is Fred McGriff as a sophomore in high school. He was 5'6", five, 5'7", five, with glasses. I told him to hit the ball and he hit it, but it wouldn't go very far. So Fred clearly hit a growth spurt at some point, because by the time of this card, he's 6'3", 215. Even his best friend as a kid said, Fred loved baseball, but he wasn't very good. He was average at best. When he got to his senior year in high school, he really kind of came into his own. Also around this time when, of 1980, when Fred was in high school, a popular character was introduced into the public consciousness.
0: Yes, this is the I mean incredibly famous throughout our childhoods, McGruff the Crime Dog. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Tony thinks he's going to walk home alone. Tony is wrong. Tony!
2: What are you doing? Walking off by
0: yourself. Good thing it was his friends, because teenagers are the victims of over 2,000 violent crimes by strangers every day. You can help stop it. Learn to protect yourself and your friends. Find out more. Write to McGruff, the Crime Dog, and help take out fight a of
1: crime. McGruff, the Crime Dog, was introduced by the Ad Council as this crime-fighting dog. It was created by the ad agency Dancer Fitzgerald and Sample, who are also famous for creating the where's the beef and energizer bunny ad campaigns, which I thought was, you know, those guys probably made some money in the (laughs) eighties. Yeah. The the dog was named in a contest. The runner up was Sherlock Holmes, which is a terrible name. Yeah. But the winning name McGruff, you know, they, they have this design of McGruff as this like weathered, detective dog. McGruff is just the perfect name and the similarity in names ends up getting Fred a a pretty good nickname by Chris Berman later in his career. While McGruff was growing in all of our minds, Fred also grew to 6'3", 190 by his senior year, gained some local fame, hitting a home run off of a crosstown kid in that senior year of high school. The pitcher who threw to Fred said that this was the longest home run he'd ever given up. That pitcher was Doc Gooden. So, of course, Doc Gooden's pitching in high school. He's already well-known. There's scouts there, including a scout from the Yankees. And they saw Fred and liked what they saw, drafted him in the ninth round. But Fred had college scholarship offers, including a scholarship to play at Georgia. His parents wanted him to go to college. But in the end, calls from Steinbrenner, letters, offers. He took $20,000 and all he ever wanted to do was play baseball so he got that opportunity with the Yankees
0: so he's drafted by the Yankees in 1981 and it would be a tough road for him to get to Yankee Stadium because he's got a couple guys ahead of him at at first base you know a couple great
1: mustaches too yes at double a a kid named Don Mattingly was just getting started and at triple a even better Steve Balboni was playing in Nashville and Also a tough road because Fred did not start out strong. He hit 148 that first year at Rookie League and went to Puerto Rico for winter ball and met a guy named Tom Amansky.
0: Tom Amansky, that's a familiar name. Who is that?
1: Arm strength, quickness, agility, and body control—the essential elements of the winning defensive baseball player—and with Coach Mansky's defensive drills video, you'll learn the amazing training secrets of America's finest baseball school. The defensive drills video features revolutionary training techniques developed by professional scout and instructor Tommy Mansky. Tommy Mansky ran a company called Baseball World, and they made instructional videos. Fred said that Tom Amansky filmed his swing, slowed it down, broke it down for him, and really helped him figure out his swing and figure out his mechanics. And it worked. Fred got much better in 1982. He hit 272, nine home runs, showing a little bit of power in 62 games in rookie ball.
0: Worked well enough that it put him on the radar for other
1: teams around the league. He ends up getting traded. The Blue Jays had seen Fred thought that he might fit into their system, knowing that the Yankees didn't particularly need another first base prospect. The Blue Jays were already in the process of trading for Dave Collins and Mike Morgan from the Yankees. They asked for McGriff to be included as just a a prospect. The Yankees were getting a pitcher and a catcher in return, and there was little resistance to adding in this relatively unheralded guy in rookie league. In
0: 1991, when asked about this... Steinbrenner said, we made some deals over the years that didn't turn out, but I'm not sure if there was a worse one than that. And as we discussed in the Ken Phelps episode, you know, the Ken Phelps-Jay Buhner trade was was epically bad. I don't know. Is this, is this maybe
2: worse to give up Fred McGriff for free? It's hard to say. Buhner and McGriff are both cornerstone type players. That's a Terrible choice between which one of those is a worse guy to lose. They're both terrible to lose. I think I would probably say the McGriff trade was even worse because, to Matt's point, he was just a throw in. There was at least a reason why the Yankees thought getting Ken Phelps was a good idea. And of course, statisticians love Ken Phelps as a player. And, you know, there's a certain logic to that. For every Jay Buhner, there are 20 guys who don't turn into Jay Buhner. The Yankees also traded Mike Morgan in that same deal where they sent uh, McGriff over. Morgan had a really long and excellent career. But they also traded away guys like Jose Rijo, Willie McGee, Bob Tewksbury in the early 1980s. So there's plenty of bad deals to choose from.
1: Fred comes into the Jays as their fifth best prospect. And his power immediately became apparent, hitting 28 home runs in 1983 at A-Ball, 22 between double and triple-A in 1984, and by 1985, he's the Blue Jays' top prospect. Looking at the back of the card,
0: 1985, that year in Syracuse, only played in 51 games because he had a stress fracture in his foot and it limited his time. But in 1986, 133 games played, hit 259 and 19 home runs, and...
1: Earned a very short call-up. Yeah, he only played two games before getting sent back down. He was called up in May, got his first hit and his first at-bat, and that's one of the fun facts here.
0: Yeah, the first fun fact, he collected first major league hit, May 18th,
1: 86. <laughs> and as you see from the line on that card, he only had five at-bats. He got a hit in his first at-bat, and then he was subbed out of that game and then went 0-4-4 in his next game and then was sent back down to the minors. But coming out of the 1987 spring training, he made a good impression and was platooning at DH with Cecil Fielder and ends up playing in 89 games at DH, 13 as a first baseman. Most of his at-bats came against righties, and he had a solid rookie season in 1987. We've talked about those 87 Jays before that they really fell off at the end of the season and blew the AL East race
2: there. I think you skipped over something important there. When Fred McGriff came up into the majors and started hitting all the home runs, that's when we first heard people saying, oh my gosh, the Yankees had this guy. And yeah, if you dig back in, yeah, six or seven years before, he was with the Yankees in the minor leagues, but it wasn't on anybody's radar until he became well-known. And you just glossed over a player that the Blue Jays had, named Cecil Fielder, who was the guy that they eventually got rid of to give a roster spot to McGriff. And similarly, nobody talked about Cecil Fielder. He left made the major leagues. He went and played in Japan. And it wasn't until he resurfaced with the Tigers that people said, who the heck is this guy? Where was he? Oh my God, the Blue Jays had him. And so, you know, we we like to beat up on the Yankees for making a bad trade. But the truth is, if you want to look through history like that, you can find that every team has made a lot of bad decisions over the years. Also, hopefully made a lot of good ones. But it's easy to pick on someone in a vacuum. That is a
0: very fair and and generous point.
1: I don't like to be fair to the Yankees. But, yes, it's a very good point. In 1988, Fred becomes the full-time first baseman Cecil Fielder is still there, but playing DH in 88 before getting sold to the uh, Hanshin Tigers. Fred repays the Blue Jays in 88 for their faith in him, hits 282 with 34 home runs. And this is the first of seven straight seasons with 30 plus home runs.
0: 1989 is the first year the Blue Jays play in the Sky Dome and McGriff ends up leading the American League in home runs with 36 and an OPS of 924 and the
1: Jays win the AL East. Yeah, Fred got his first chance to play in the playoffs. Unfortunately, he hit only 143 in a five-game
2: series loss to the Oakland A's. Who had an amazing pitching staff, so not, not surprising.
0: 1990, Fred has another strong year, ends the season with 35 homers and hit 300. And after the season, the Jays make a big trade.
1: They traded the 26-year-old McGriff and three-time All-Star shortstop Tony Fernandez to the Padres for Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter. And Andy, I know that you have some strong feelings about Joe Carter, but this trade turned out pretty well for the Blue Jays.
2: You can't argue that. I mean, it directly led to them winning two World Series titles, and so you can't fault them for trading away McGriff or the late Tony Fernandez.
1: Yeah, and just a huge trade when you think about it. You, Tony Fernandez had been there through some of those Bad years for the Blue Jays and and was really a great player. McGriff, young and upcoming guy, leads the league in home runs. But wow, that turned out great for the Blue Jays. So 1991,
0: Fred McGriff, his first year with the Padres, he just keeps on being Fred McGriff. 31 homers, 106 RBIs.
1: I feel like Fred McGriff is a little bit like Mark Grace, where we just run through it and go. And then he did the same thing for 10 straight seasons. <laughs> But one interesting thing that happened in 1991, Tom Amansky comes back into the picture and gives Fred the opportunity of a lifetime. And maybe one of the things that Fred is most known for among 90s kids. And that is the Tom Amansky's instructional video series. (laughs) These commercials were shown, I don't know, a hundred times an hour on ESPN. As a young person, I every morning would watch Sports Center. And I don't know how many times I saw these videos, but they have Fred in a very high hat. And he's talking straight to camera and he says, Ask Major League superstar Fred McGriff.
0: I'm so impressed with the instructional videos by
1: Coach Amansky that I've given them my full endorsement. When you watch them, you'll know why. The defensive drills video is available now for immediate shipping. It makes a great gift and benefits players. And this football. kind of became a running joke around the league. As Fred would go into locker rooms, the commercial would come on ESPN because, of course, all of the players are also watching ESPN. And then they would joke with Fred about his acting ability. What Fred said happened here was he was playing for San Diego. They were playing in Chicago. After the game, they go to a little league park, and he just films him straight to camera, and he gives him a shirt and a hat. And I think Tom Amansky was filming the video himself. Fred just said, yeah, give me 1% of whatever you make. And he didn't think that this was going to turn into anything. And then it goes on for the next 20 years, showed every five minutes on ESPN. Fred said that he was happy that Tom made money off of it. Earlier in his career, he said that Tom was incredibly helpful to him getting to the big leagues and making a living. And so he was happy that Tom sold a ton of videos. I forgot that those were $29.95 a pop. It always looked like it was just kids throwing a ball from the outfield into a garbage can. (laughs) I don't know exactly what they were teaching. That commercial was shown 100,000 times, the Tom Amansky defensive drills video. It's also popped up recently in the news, just this past May, when Kenny Main was retiring, because Kenny Main, it was a running joke with him. When somebody would make a good defensive play, he would say, like, this guy must have watched the Tom Amansky videos endorsed by Fred McGriff. So Fred McGriff was on there, I think to say goodbye to Kenny Mayne or something. And he said he never actually watched the video. So you know, breaking news and controversy that he endorsed this product that he had never watched. One of the biggest scandals to hit
0: baseball players in the 1980s and 90s. It's really, really has shaken my faith in the game.
1: This did lead me to look at Fred's baseball reference page and see that he, for his career, had a minus 17.3 defensive war. And so I wonder maybe, first, if the Tom Amansky videos would have helped. But second, maybe we can bring on Andy to talk about what that defensive war number means and maybe, I guess, what it represents.
2: Well, defensive war is a tricky metric to look at. And the first thing you have to ask yourself is what position did he play? Griff obviously was almost exclusively a first baseman in the major leagues, also playing some games at DH. First base is among the least valuable defensive positions on the field. So defensive war has built into it a penalty saying, hey, a good first baseman is not worth nearly as much as a good shortstop or a good center fielder because those guys are harder to find and they're so much more important in terms of how your team performs defensively overall. So instead of looking at the defensive war, I would look just at his raw fielding runs number, which you can also find on his baseball reference page under the player value batting table. And you can see that for his career, he was worth negative 34 runs, which is not great. A contemporary of his, who was already mentioned as blocking McGriff at first base in the Yankees system, Don Mattingly, everybody would agree that Mattingly was a fantastic defensive first baseman. He was worth plus 33 fielding runs. So McGriff negative 34, Mattingly plus 33. So there's a difference there. I think what the statistics tell us was McGriff was a little bit below average as a first baseman for his career was not hugely impactful. And by the way, if you want to look at his offensive production on the same scale, his batting runs for his career was plus 399. So way, way, way more impactful than either Mattingly or (laughs) McGriff's fielding totals. And I also think that
1: if you look at even the traditional numbers, he wasn't terrible. He, He led the league in fielding percentage. Some years he led the league in errors committed as well.
2: And you can't discount that for a lot of his career, he was getting throws from guys like Tony Fernandez. And then when he was with the Rays, you know, the Rays were an expansion team. They didn't know what they were doing. They had a lot of terrible players. You know, McGriff may have been out of position a lot of times when he was fielding. Who knows? It's not surprising to see bad numbers pop up with a really bad team. So the defensive numbers,
0: not super impressive for Fred McGriff. But meanwhile, the offensive numbers continue to... Sparkle 1992 he makes his first all-star team he leads the national league in home runs with 35 and becomes the first player to lead two different leagues in home runs since Harry Stovey did in the 19th century
1: yeah I, I thought that was a fun note do you have
0: anything <laughs> deep on Harry Stovey I
1: no I don't I should have gone <laughs> what's Harry Stovey's deal where's where is he now
0: <laughs> six feet <laughs> under
1: He was born in 1856 in Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah. And his numbers similarly impressive. He hit 14 home runs to lead the league in 1883 and then led the national league with 16 in 1891. Harry Stovey.
0: Good job, Harry.
1: (laughs) Interesting that Fred had some really good seasons. I think some of his best seasons of his career were in Toronto and he never made an all-star team not until 1992 when he's in San Diego. He also finished sixth in MVP voting in 1992. But these Padres teams in 91 and 92 were both around 500. By 93, they're bad. They lost 100 games, and Fred at this point is one of the higher-paid players on that team. He had 18 home runs in the first half of the season, but the Padres had to cut payroll. Yep, so they end up trading... McGriff to the Braves for Vince Moore, Donnie Elliott, and Melvin Nieves. I have nothing on these guys either, really, except that Nieves was later traded for Raul Casanova, which is a fantastic name.
2: (laughs) I think that they were some highly regarded prospects, but see also Jay Buhner on our earlier comments. A lot of times those guys don't pan out. The the Braves, who are nine games behind San Francisco
0: when McGriff joins in midseason, And they close the season strong, 51-17 and to end the season. McGriff got a lot of credit for this run. He ends up fourth in the National League in MVP voting. And the Braves end up winning the National League West.
1: Fred hit 310 in his time in Atlanta in 63 games. The Braves won 104 games and play the Phillies in the NLCS. Despite a losing effort, Fred hit 435 in those six games against the Phillies. In
0: 1994, Fred, another fantastic season through the first 114 games, hitting 318, OPS of 1.012 and 34 home runs makes the all-star game again.
1: He won the MVP of that 94 all-star game. He hit a game-tying pinch hit home run off of Hall of Famer Lee Smith in the ninth inning. And then the strike ended the season after 114 games. Fred was on track at this point. For his best season of his career, he would have definitely had 40-plus home runs for the first time, and he was on another competitive Atlanta team. It was really unfortunate for Fred that it really the height of his powers to have that strike come in.
2: There's been a lot of commentary over the years about which players were hurt the most by that 1994 strike that ended the season. Talk about Tony Wynn. He had a real shot at, at batting 400. A lot of people talk about Matt Williams, who was on pace for 61 home runs when that season ended, but I'm not sure that anybody was hurt more than Fred McGriff because McGriff is often brought up as the guy with the most career home runs who never hit 40 in a season. He finished with 493, certainly would have finished with 500 had he been able to play out that 1994 season. Bottom line, I think he would be in the Hall of Fame already if not for that 1994 strike year. And you can't say the same for Matt Williams, I don't think. You know, Even had he hit 61 that year, I think like Sosa and Maguire, for example, he wouldn't be in the Hall as a player. So it, it, it's a real shame to see somebody have their their legacy tarnished through something that's no fault of their own at all.
0: Yeah, it's a I think a really good point by 1995, the years that follow are just a click lower. You know, he's hitting 280 with 27 home runs and 93 RBIs, which ends his streak of 30 plus Homer seasons. But the Braves keep rolling. It's another playoff year.
1: Yeah, a a good year for Fred and a great year for Atlanta. They won the NL East with 90 wins, make it to the playoffs and the NLDS. They're playing the Rockies. And they won that series in four games. Fred had hits in all four games, and he hit 3:33. He showed up huge in the deciding game four with two home runs, drove in five in a 10-4 to win to win that series.
0: Carrying that into the NLCS, he hits 438 as the Braves sweep the Reds
1: and make it back to the World Series. And in World Series game one, he hits a home run off of Oral Hirschheiser in his first World Series at bat. Atlanta wins that game, and Fred hit 261 for the series. So, a little bit of a drop off from his NLCS and NLDS performance. But Atlanta beat Cleveland in six games for their first World Series championship in Atlanta, and the only series win for Bobby Cox. And 1996, here we go again.
0: Another McGriff year 295, 28 homers, 107 RBIs, and the Braves win the division again.
1: Of course, they did. They won the division. What? 14 straight years. Fred had a good NLDS. He had a 1.194 OPS and a sweep of the Dodgers. Atlanta makes it back to the World Series, but lost to the Yankees in 96.
0: And 1997, we're starting to get a dip in power. So only 22 home runs. And the Braves win the division again, but lose to the Marlins and the NLCS.
1: Maybe an unfortunate way for Fred to end his time in Atlanta. But after... The 97 season, he sold to the expansion Tampa Bay Devil Rays. So he went from a team in the middle of winning an unprecedented number of division titles to the devilish (laughs) Raymonds.
2: They recently had a turn back the clock night. Did you guys see that? They wore their original uniforms, which looked pretty nice. You know, David's point about having to go to those expansion rays can't really be overstated that first year. When McGriff was one of their inaugural players, they went sixty-three and ninety-nine, which sounds, you know, pretty bad. But you have to remember the Yankees that year, I believe if you count the postseason, the Yankees went one hundred and twenty five and fifty that year. <laughs> so the Rays finished fifty one games back, which is really <laughs> incredible. And you know, McGriff was one of their only bonafide major league star quality players. Imagine how bad it would have been if he hadn't been there. Imagine how important he was. Local Tampa boy, as David already talked about, how important was he to getting that franchise on the map there?
1: He had 19 home runs, which isn't really up to his standard, but it did lead the team. He was much better in 99 and 2000. He hit 32 and 27 home runs respectively and made the 2000 all-star team. And that season, he became the second player to hit 200 home runs in both leagues after Frank Robinson.
0: In 2001, Fred's 37 years old now and was playing really well through 97 games. He's hitting 318. And the Cubs, they're looking for a lefty to hit behind Sammy Sosa and end up making a trade. I didn't even remember this.
1: I definitely thought he played with the Cubs for longer than a season and a half. And maybe it's because of that 2002 season. Tampa Bay trades Fred to the Cubs for a player to be named later and Manny Ibar. The Cubs sent Jason Smith to the Rays to complete the trade.
2: The Cubs picked up McGriff, as you said, to give Sammy Sosa protection. And they picked him up near the trading deadline when they were in first place. And eventually tanked and they finished third in their division that year and missed the playoffs but it wasn't because of McGriff. He hit incredibly well in those 49 games with the Cubs. I just want to call out something a little bit here statistically. I know you guys like talking about home runs and RBI, but Matt made a really good point about how McGriff's performance sort of ticked down after the 1994 season, which is exactly right. A really good number to look at instead of just OPS is OPS+. plus. So it tells you basically factoring it on base and slugging percentage together is this guy above or below league average, and so it's on a scale of 100, where above 100 is is above average, below 100 is below average. From 1986 to 1994, McGriff has a 153 OPS plus, which is excellent. That's telling you this guy's you know 50 percent better than an average major leaguer, which is which is really something, right? I mean, that is absolute superstar level. And then come 1995, that season, McGriff dips down to 119, and he is generally in the sort of 110 to 120 range most years until he has this renaissance year in 99 with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays where he hits 142 OPS plus, and then with the Cubs, he's back up at 145. For that stretch and again he's an older guy in his late 30s by this point because it was a real renaissance for him
1: and he was in a movie with lance bass and joey fatone Ooh, i don't know i could not find the scene but apparently they go to a baseball game it was called on the line and i think it's about a missed connection on the cta
0: yeah i do remember this i did not watch this movie but i do remember there being ads on the train for this movie, which was set on the train during the peak of the NSYNC and Backstreet Boys era.
1: According to Rotten Tomatoes, this is an inept attempt at romantic comedy aimed at NSYNC fans. So I I don't know if either of us are in that demographic, (laughs) but that's on Fred McGriff's IMDb page. And (laughs) the only non-baseball thing that's on there. So I, I think that part of it was that They're Cubs fans and they connect about being Cubs fans.
2: Today, I learned that it's not pronounced Joey Fat One.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is like not even in the notes. Just a thing that Dave knows because I watch Guy Fieri's show too much. Joey Fatone has a restaurant called Fat Ones that is like a hot dog place. So I appreciate that he's leaned into that. (laughs) Also leaning in, in 2002, Fred is back at it and hitting 30 home runs and 100 RBIs again. He's a 38-year-old for the Cubs. He'd been pretty consistent in those couple years with the Cubs.
0: And he had been consistently pretty healthy, but he's 39 years old at this point, and the Cubs don't renew his contract. He ends up signing with the Dodgers for 2003, but injuries start to become an issue. They limited him to only 86 games. So he hit 13 home runs that season, taking up to 491.
1: So sitting on 491 home runs, Fred goes back to Tampa to try to hit that milestone. As we talked about the Devil Rays not a great team, but they would bring some older guys in trying to get them to hit some milestones to bring some fans into the stand and get some excitement. I think Wade Boggs had his 3000th hit as a player on Tampa Bay. So they bring Fred back hometown boy, Only got to hit nine more home runs. He hit a home run on May 31st, 2004 and another on June 17th. And then by mid July, he's hitting 181. And unfortunately the Rays had to release him. They, he just, he couldn't do it. And he ended his career on 493 home runs, officially retiring in spring of 2005. So closing the book on McGriff's career Five-time
0: All-Star, two-time home run champ, All-Star Game MVP, World Series champ, tied with Lou Gehrig at 493 home runs, almost 2,500 hits, and 50 games in the playoffs, hitting 303 and 10 home runs. So an incredible career. What was his retirement like?
1: He's worked in coaching and consulting for some of the teams that he played for, the Rays, Blue Jays, and most recently back in Atlanta, He was a spring training instructor and scout for Atlanta. He's also on Cameo. You can get a Cameo from Ron Kittle for $42. McGriff's going to cost you $145. Both of those are very good deals to me. If either of them want to say that they give me a full endorsement, I will accept it.
0: (laughs) Andy, we need to talk. We need to have a serious heart-to-heart here about Fred McGriff in the Hall of Fame because we just rattled off these career stats you said he was kind of cheated out of 50 games at the very peak of his career that would have definitely put him on pace to be over 500 home runs. He was on the ballot in 2010, only got 21 percent of the vote. He needed to get 75 percent. 2019 was his final year on the ballot. He only got 40 percent. What do you think has held Fred back? And do you think he belongs there?
2: Well, it's a, it's a complicated question, I think, with Fred McGriff, because he was a great player, he had a very long career, and I think it's one of the more interesting cases for debate in terms of whether a player deserves the Hall of Fame. I think that if he had gotten to play that full 1994 season, he would have gotten to 500, and I think he would be in the Hall of Fame. I also don't think he necessarily deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, but I think that that was still at a time when 500 home runs was maybe an automatic, right? It was before Maguire and, and these other players that have come up and, and aren't going to quite make it. I think that if you look at his career wins above replacement, uh, it's interesting. He comes in among first basemen at 23rd most of all time. He's just a little bit below players like Keith Hernandez, John Olerud, and Will Clark, and just a bit above guys like Mark Teixeira, Jason Giambi, and Mark Grace, who David mentioned earlier and is is a really good comp for McGriff in terms of career consistency. Those are all guys who are kind of on the bubble. McGriff is also really close to Tony Perez and Orlando Cepeda. He's right between those two. And those are two guys who made the Hall of Fame but were questionable selections. And, you know, he falls way short of players like, McCovey and Eddie Murray and Jeff Bagwell and Albert Pujols, Lou Gehrig, way, way short. Lou Gehrig has more than twice the career wins above replacement than McGriff does. If you want to look at it in that purely statistical bent, it would be hard to justify him getting in over, for example, a guy like John Ulrich or Todd Helton. Each of those guys clearly had better and more valuable careers, but this is, you know, Hall of Fame is just not about numbers, right? It's not Hall of Numbers. It's not Adam Dorowski's Hall of Stats. (laughs) It's It's the Hall of Fame. And McGriff has so many other things going for him. We've talked about the fact that he didn't play on a lot of great teams. He was stuck with the Padres when they were a lousy team. He had the downside of his career. He was with the Devil Rays, who were not a great team at all. And so he didn't get the kind of notoriety that he might have gotten otherwise. I think there are a few things that are really very much in McGriff's favor when you think about his Hall of Fame case. He was one of the most feared hitters in baseball for a very long period of time. He anchored lineups year after year after year as one of their core hitters. He hit so many long balls, drove in so many runs. It's really hard to overlook that. And he was intentionally walked a whole bunch of times in his career. Right, He he topped 10 intentional walks uh, a whole bunch of times. It looks like about eight eight times in his career and had more than 20 twice. I mean, that tells you something when pitchers are so afraid of a guy that they'd rather put him on than pitch to him. He also hit incredibly well in the postseason. David touched on some of this, but for his career, McGriff batted 303 in the playoffs in 50 games, slugged 532. This guy hit 10 home runs in 50 games. That may not sound like a lot, but remember, you're facing playoff pitching. You're not facing the bottom feeders of the league. You're always facing good pitching when you're in the playoffs. This guy's a 300 hitter in the playoffs over 50 games and hit 10 home runs. And to me, that's worth a lot. So I think of McGriff a lot like Jim Rice. Another controversial selection. Rice definitely doesn't have a strong a numerical case as a lot of other batters, but Rice was feared. He was the feared center of a strong lineup for many, many, many years. Nobody wanted to face that guy. He was regarded as simply one of the best power hitters in the league. McGriff was the same way. And For that reason and that reason alone, I would love it if he made the Hall of Fame. I would put him in a similar category to Harold Baines. They're both well-documented, as incredibly nice guys, both incredibly consistent players for a very, very long time. Both probably fall short on the statistics side of things. Both are guys I would love to see in the Hall of Fame, as Baines already is. And I think that that does bring us to
1: the... The Today's Game Era Committee, formerly, they had the Veterans Committee to bring guys into the Hall of Fame who missed out in those first 10 years or 15 years of journalist voting. And so that's recently led to guys like Harold Baines, Jack Morris, Lee Smith, Ted Simmons, getting voted in by this Today's Game Era. The group's made up of Hall of Famers, executives, media, and historians. Baines never got more than 6% of the vote, but this group of 16 people decided... He belongs in the Hall of Fame, probably because he's a nice guy and because they're baseball people who know him and personally know him. And I think that McGriff is probably going to end up in the same boat. He, in 2019, he got 40% of the vote, but this committee of 16 guys gets to say, yeah, you represent somebody from our era who belongs in the Hall of Fame. For his time, from 1987 to 2003, Fred had the fifth most home runs of any player in baseball. Behind only Bonds, McGuire, Sosa, and Palmero. Unlike those guys, there was never any implication that McGriff was using performance enhancing drugs that I have have heard.
2: Hey, can you imagine a, a player who's six foot three today, weighing two fifteen? <laughs> McGriff no. McGriff had that lean, muscular but lean frame his entire career. His body never changed his entire career.
1: And and he put together this impressive career. Right now, I think voters, when they had a limited number of people that they could vote for, did Fred McGriff hit that that threshold to to be on that ballot? And maybe he didn't. But if you look at the body of his career, he's on the line, and maybe he belongs. And maybe that today's game era committee will determine that Fred belongs in the Hall of Fame. But I really have. a fond memory of Fred and maybe it's all because of so many times seeing him on the Tom videos. I think it's a little bit unfortunate that Fred didn't get to play a little bit longer in Atlanta and maybe didn't get his time in the spotlight as one of the best first baseman of the eighties and nineties. He was well-respected at the time, but as we've said, a little bit forgotten and a little bit of a, of a forgotten player of that era And maybe it's because he didn't have that one fantastic MVP season or some of those shining moments that we've seen from other players. But if Fred McGriff gets into the Hall of Fame, I'm not going to be mad about it. Seems like a great guy and was a great player.
0: Well, that sounds good to me. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Remind folks where they can find you.
1: You can find me uh mostly on
0: twitter at high heat stats we will do that and we'll look forward to having you back on a future episode. and thank you to you at home if you're about to spend a weekend throwing a ball into a garbage can we'd love to hear from you you can find us on twitter at tops 1988 thanks a lot and we'll see you next week